opportunity to draw our attentions to God's Word. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if many of y'all had similar experience to me when I was growing up, but one of the challenges of the summer when I was growing up was boredom. My mom would be out of the house or working and I'd be left alone. No one in the neighborhood was able to play, nothing good on TV. I mean, what young boy wants to watch soap operas? And I would struggle with boredom. And in the midst of that boredom, I began to discover that maybe these things called books were all right. Because at least it would help me have something to focus on. And, and one summer when I was bored, I discovered the Chronicles of Narnia, which many of y'all may have read by the author C.S. Lewis. And they captured my attention because it told a story about people, children in particular, that were taken from this ordinary world that we all live in and brought into this beautiful, magical adventure. And I remember one summer when I finished that series feeling sad that it was done because I longed to be a part of that adventure and hated that this imaginative adventure had come to an end. But that summer we were also looking around to perhaps move and so we would go tour houses and every time I would go into a house I'd be always looking for a wardrobe with a, a back that didn't exist, or a secret trap door, or, or something in that house that would tell me that this place was a place that would call me out into adventure. All of us, I think, have that part of our heart that longs to be captivated and drawn out into an adventure, and all of us hate boredom. We are made to have something outside of us, that captures our hearts, that captures our affection, that captures our interest. And all of us are seeking and looking for it. Today in this passage, the Apostle Paul says, you don't have to wonder where it is. You don't have to go looking for it. But it's right here, a mystery that has been revealed to you. Keeping that in our minds, let us turn now to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 14. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." This is God's word. It's right for us to pause and ask for his help in understanding it. I invite you to pray along with me in your hearts. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a father who helps his children and that you see our weaknesses, our frailties, our needs, and you seek to address them out of yourself and your goodness. Even now as we gather together, may these words speak into the darkness, the emptiness, the voids in our life, that we might be filled with your love. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Today, as we reflect on this passage, the outline for today, the thing that I hope you get is this, blessed by the beloved, blessed by the beloved. But first, blessed. Paul, in this passage, talks about the blessings that the Ephesians have. But he also talks about the blessing that he does to God. What do we mean when we say blessed? So often when we hear that word blessed or blessed, we think of the good things that we have in our life. And this is kind of what Paul means in verse 6 when he talks about us being blessed in the beloved. But there's another sense of blessing that Paul has in this passage, and we see that in verse 3. In verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that word blessing there in the Greek has a sense of speaking well of someone. In fact, the Greek word there is the, the word that becomes eulogy in our language. You know about a eulogy? That's when you speak good words about someone who has died, right? That word eulogy means good words. And Paul here, when he speaks about blessing in verse 3, has that idea of good words that are are being said, which of course makes sense of how he could bless God. When he says, blessed be God, he's not saying, I'm going to be able to give God something that, that he needs as though God lacks something, that his happiness isn't quite complete without what Paul would provide. When he speaks about blessing God, he's saying, I want to say good things about God. And this also makes sense of what Paul does throughout this section that we have. He starts off by saying, I want to bless God to speak good words. But throughout this passage, he speaks over and over again about the praise that he does towards God. So we see him talk in verse 6 about the praise of his glorious grace. Or in verse 12, the praise of his glory. Or verse 14, again, the praise of his glory. Or we even see the way that he uses effusive language in this passage, like the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. Throughout this section, it's really one long sentence in the Greek, over 200 words that Paul has as one long run-on sentence. And that, I think, communicates to us what's going on in this passage. That Paul is wanting to almost overwhelm us with the way that he is overwhelmed as he thinks about God. This long section is a section of Paul blessing God, saying good words about God. 
And Paul wants to understand the goodness of God because he sees this as a vital part of the Christian life. He sees this as a vital part of what you're supposed to do as a Christian. As a Christian, you're called to bless God. And in some sense, this isn't just something that the Christians would do. This is something that Paul would have learned in Judaism. Think about Psalm 103, if you're familiar with it. In that psalm, the psalmist says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Doesn't that kind of sound a bit like our passage? Where Paul says, blessed be God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks about the way that he forgives our trespasses, the way that he provides for us through the redemption of Christ, the way that he gives us good things. Paul here in this passage is doing something that he would have learned in Judaism, that that we as followers of God are called to bless the Lord within our hearts to bless the Lord within our soul. And the psalmist in that Psalm 103 says this, he says, as we bless the Lord, we remember that he satisfies you with good so that your your youth is renewed like the eagles. I think that is a fascinating thing that he reflects on because the psalmist is saying that there's something that blessing God does to us. There's something that, that happens to our soul as we remember, as we reflect upon God and what he has done for us. That, in a sense, it renews us in a way that makes us to feel young again. You know, I talked about boredom at the beginning. One of the problems of boredom, one of the reasons why we don't like it, is you feel weak. When I was in seminary, we had to memorize these lists of feeling words. And they were categorized by kind of the broad overarching theme around these feeling words. And this was for counseling so that you could kind of help people put their finger on the word that they were, the feeling that they were experiencing with a particular word. And one of the things that fascinated me was we were doing that is they said that boredom was put under the category of a weak feeling. Boredom was put under the category of a weak feeling. Have you ever thought about that? That boredom in some sense feels like you're weak, like you're languishing. That's why you begin to crave something. You desire something. And you you look for something, whether it's on your phone or outside or in a person, to engage you. And and until you find that thing that engages you, it's like there's this longing and this frustration, like an itch in the middle of your back that you can't quite scratch. But but when you find something that engages you, ah, it's relief. Now, why is that? That boredom feels so weak. And that the only way that we can feel like we are right again is if we find something outside that's compelling. It's because the way that you were made was to be a worshiping creature. That the way that you were created is to find your wholeness when you wholly think of God. And you dwell on Him, who He is, and what he has done. You see, all of us are most whole when we are wholly worshiping God. 
And so this is what Paul is wanting the Ephesians to see, that, that it's vital for them to be constantly blessing the Lord, saying good words about the Lord, that this is a part of how they make it as humans. But it's in particular interesting that Paul does this to the people in Ephesus. This letter is written to the Ephesians, and, and Ephesus was a, a town in modern-day Turkey. And it was known primarily as the place that housed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis or Diana. This was kind of the heartbeat of the city was the fact that they had this temple. And this temple was notable because it had a statue of Diana in it that, that they would say fell from heaven. And people from throughout the ancient world would come to this temple so that they could worship Diana, so that they could worship Artemis, so that they could see the, the beauty of the temple. And through this, think about the glory of Diana. And in fact, this is the problem that Paul dealt with. If you go and read the story of how the gospel comes to Ephesus, it was because Paul was on one of his missionary journeys and he comes to Ephesus and he begins to teach about the gospel. But people hear what he's teaching. And the people in Ephesus see it as a threat. And they drag Paul and his companions before the, the town council and, and the whole city ends up getting worked up and they, they gather around to, to kill Paul. In the book of Acts, in the midst of this lynch mob that has been created, we hear this. We hear the town clerk say, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, and also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. The people see that there's a threat that Paul is doing that, that may attack the worship of Artemis. And when they recognize what Paul is doing, that he's a Jew who doesn't believe that Diana exists, the town spends two hours, Luke tells us, chanting over and over and over again the line, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now think about that. The way that Paul comes into the city is he begins to talk about the worship of God and that becomes a threat to the city so that they gather everyone together and for two hours say again and again and again, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And finally, the town clerk quiets the crowd down and he says, men of Ephesus who is there who does not know the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone, the statue of Diana that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Paul experienced the power of worship in Ephesus. And the way that their worship of Diana was so powerful and threatening that they wanted to kill him. And as he writes to these Ephesians, he knows that that's the waters that they swim in. They live in a city that is founded on worship. They live in a city that thrives on worship. They live in a city that is built around worship and its power and its importance. And so Paul speaks to them and says, worship 
as you well know, is vital. But I don't want you to worship Diana. I don't want you to worship Artemis. I want you to worship the God who exists, the God who is real. Isn't that a striking way to understand what Paul is doing, why he spends such a long time reflecting upon worship and how we should speak good words about God? Because he knows that these people are inundated with a different kind of worship. They're surrounded by a different kind of worship. And Paul sees worship as a part of our humanity, and it's vital for us to see that so that we then worship rightly. If they don't stop and think about God and worship Him, then what's going to form them and shape them is the worship that's surrounding them. Just as the whole crowd comes together and is caught up in two hours of praise of Artemis, Paul knows that we too are caught up in the worship that surrounds us. And so Paul is doing something powerfully subversive here. He's teaching the Ephesians how not to be formed by the worship that surrounds them, but to be thoughtfully and intentionally being formed by right worship, by the worship of the God who is, the God who exists. And so Paul is helping to teach the Ephesians the importance of worship as he's writing this letter, but he's doing it in a way that kind of almost subverts the worship that they would have been around. To the worshipers of Diana, what was it that they worshiped? A stone image of the God who fell from heaven. But what is it that the Christians are called to reflect on in this passage? They're called to reflect on Jesus. And the way that what we worship is not a stone image that fell from heaven, but the real image of God who descended down from heaven to earth to teach us who he was, to show us who he was. To the worshipers of Diana, this stone image was given, but to the Christians, God came in flesh to dwell with them. To the worshipers of Diana, this temple was the way that they saw glimpses of what Diana was like and what her glory might be like in heaven. But to the Christians, their understanding of God is different. Paul speaks about how God seeks to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Diana's worship was to bring them up to be with her, but this worship shows us that we have a God who comes down to be with us. The Ephesians Christians lived in a city that was filled with worship and a worship that was centered around Diana. But Paul is helping them to see you have to constantly be speaking to yourself the truth about who God is so that that truth shapes you because it's so different than the culture around you. Paul is showing us the subversive nature of worship. And he's teaching the Ephesians that this is the vital way that you live in a world, in a culture that doesn't embrace God by constantly reminding yourself of who he is, what he's like, the truth of God. 
And this city that they were in was a city that was tolerant of many things as long as it did not challenge its gods. That's what Paul ran into, right? The second that they thought that his worship might undermine the worship of Diana, they were ready to kill him. And so these young Christians that he's writing to need to have a sense of security. Now, how is it that God gives them that security? How is it that Paul helps them to see that security? It's again by worship. And so in this passage, as he's blessing God, as he's speaking good things about what he does, he highlights the way that God has a plan. He says in verses 4 and 5, Even as he, God, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Paul is calling the Ephesian Christians to praise, to bless God for his plan and the way that that God is at work. This is actually a foundation of Paul and the way that he thinks of himself. We see this in verse 1. There he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Paul understands who he is because of his worship. He understands what his life should be like because of his worship. Because he worships a God who is a planner. Because he worships a God with a plan. He sees that his life is shaped by that plan. And Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to realize the the security they have because of God's plan. That it's not a fly-by-the-seat's plan, but it is one that is laid out even before the foundation of the world, even before the dawn of time. Before the first molecules come into being, Paul says, God already had a plan for you. God already had set his love on you. God already, before the foundation of the world, said that you will be holy and blameless in him. Paul wants the Ephesians to remember the plan of God as a part of their praise because that can give them a sense of confidence in the overwhelming sea of anger or hatred that they may be experiencing in Ephesus. This was a part of what was comforting to Paul himself. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. He was a man who had persecuted the church. And Jesus, the Son of God, came to Paul in a vision after, uh, after the death and resurrection of Jesus and asked Paul, why do you persecute me? Paul was an enemy of God, yet even though God knew that about Paul, he pursued Paul, came to him, spoke to him, gave him grace. Paul understands himself not in the context of his plans, of his past, of his present, but God's plan, God's love, God's predestination. And that gives Paul a sense of security that that in the midst of the ups and downs of his life, when he gets threatened by people, when he's shipwrecked, when he's whipped, regardless of whatever he deals with, he knows that God's plan is the foundation of his security. 
And Paul wants the Ephesians, in the midst of the instability that they're surrounded in that culture, to have a a deeper security, a deeper stability that's rooted in the plan of God. The people of Ephesus needed to praise God because it would bring them the security that they longed for. And Paul wants them to understand the nature of that security, that that security is something that is not built on their plan, but is ultimately built on God's love. And so as he speaks about God's love, he says that it was in love that he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. God's plan wasn't built off of Paul's love for God or the Ephesians' love for God or God's ability to get something out of Paul or the Ephesians or us, but God's plan was built around his love. It wasn't that Paul was mighty or strong, or wasn't that the Ephesians were going to be great for God's bottom line. There's no way to know why God loves us, why God loved Paul why he loved the Ephesians. But all that we can say is he did. We can't know why he loves us, but Paul helps us to know that he does love us, to show us that the reason that we know that he does love us is because of our relationship to him through Jesus. A refrain of the book of Ephesians is the little phrase, in Christ. And we even see this in this passage, that that 12 times in this passage, he refers to the way that believers are found in Christ, that there's something that unites them to Jesus. And Paul draws this to our attention because he wants us to understand the security that we have is not just in the plan of God, but is in the person of God. He wants them to understand that the security that we have is not just that God has a good desire for us, but that God has given us himself. And we see when we become Christians, it's not just that we receive these blessings, like a gift basket that you may have received for Christmas, you know, one that has like a little cheese and sausage and some crackers and mustard. Sometimes we think of our salvation or relationship with God like that, that he gives us a little gift basket filled with some good things, like even what Paul talks about in this passage, things like adoption or justification or sanctification. But Paul, throughout this passage, says it's not that you get these blessings from God, these material things that gives you security, but what gives you security is the fact that you get him. You get who he is. And think about the subversive nature of this again in light of the fact that this was written to a place that was founded around a temple. The economy of the city was humming because people were coming so that they could get close to this God that they might get blessed. But Paul says, you have a whole different way of understanding your relationship with Jesus. You don't have to go to him that you might receive blessings, but he has come to dwell with you wherever you are. That you don't have to go to him and, and offer some sort of sacrifice that he might pour out on you some material blessings, but he came down and sacrificed himself for you so that you would have him. 
story of the gospel was radically different than what the Ephesians thought about gods and what they thought about worship. Because the story of the gospel is not that we do something good so that the God that we worship blesses us, but the story of the gospel is that the God of the universe, before we could do anything good, said, I want to be with you, dwell with you, and pour out on you my love and my blessing." How different than what the Ephesians would have thought. And that shifts and changes the way that the Ephesians think about himself. And really, this is kind of the thrust of this whole letter. In the first part of this letter, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul teaches them again and again and again about the the blessings that are being poured out on them in Christ. And then in the second half of his letter, we'll see that he begins to say, now, don't you realize how that shifts the way that you look at yourself? Don't you realize that that's a different way that you live? You see, the things that capture your heart, the things that you praise, that's what you pursue, that's what you go after. That's what we see in Ephesus. They, they praised Diana, and so they, they guarded it, and they built their life around it. And Paul wants the Ephesians to have that same understanding that that's how humans are created, to see something that is great and compelling and to go after it. Whatever you praise, you pursue, you seek after it, and it shapes you. And so that's why Paul has to constantly be subverting the worship of Diana and pointing them back to the right worship of God so that they'll live in light of him. He's wanting to reform their identity through worship. And I think that's a fascinating thing to think about. Reform their identity through worship. Because I think what we deal with now in our culture is a similar challenge. Right now in our culture, the question of identity is a huge one. People are longing to know, who am I? People are longing to understand who they are, who they really are. People are trying to define themselves and their identity in all sorts of ways. And the more that we are putting our eggs in that basket of trying to discover our identity, what we see in our culture is more and more anxiety, more and more unhappiness, more and more sense of unknown. In our culture, one of the subversive aspects of our worship as Christians is we are reminded that we don't have to wonder who I am. We don't have to wonder what our identity is. We don't have to wonder if our identity is good or bad. We know what our identity is. Our identity is Jesus. Our identity is that we are so united to Jesus in our salvation that the way that God views us is Jesus. And this is what Paul is showing us in this passage by again and again helping us to see that all of our understanding of ourself is seen through Jesus. And it's seen most clearly in the way that that he shows us the depth to which God goes to help us to understand our identity. 
We see this in verse 7 when he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. There Paul is saying, we see the depth of God's love in the cross. I had a friend who had bed bugs. If you ever had bed bugs, you know that it's not an easy problem. They had to put a massive tent over his house, fill it with all these terrible chemicals, and crank up heaters throughout the house to get it hot enough to try to kill the bed bugs. They had to go through the house and, and get everything that they could that could th- be thrown away and throw it away, and everything else they had to, to relentlessly clean. It's a terrible problem. The extent of the remedy shows us the depth of the problem. And Paul says that we needed redemption, but that only comes through his blood. The only way that God could save us because we were so lost in our sin is to send himself, to come in the flesh, to come as Jesus, to redeem us through his blood. But not only does that show us the depth of our problem, it shows us the depth of God's commitment, the depth of his love the depth of his care for his people, that he would come in the flesh not to be worshipped, not to receive sacrifices, but to be sacrificed. This is the level of commitment that God has to those that he loves. This is the level of God's commitment to you. Now think how that changes how you look at yourself. Think how that shifts the way that you think about yourself. We behold ourselves through the eyes of others. But look at yourself through God's eyes. How does he view you? So precious to him. Such a treasure to him that he didn't demand you sacrifice for him, but said, I want to sacrifice myself for you. Now, what does that do for you when you build your identity around that? Think how that can take away that sense of insecurity that exists in all of our hearts when we walk into a room. Think about the way that that takes away the the fear that we have that that says somehow, some way, God is going to abandon me. Think about the way that that shifts the way that we think about what God must expect from us, that he's there with a frowny face just waiting for us to get our act together. No, all those things come out of a wrong worship, looking at God through our eyes. But when we look at ourselves through God's eyes, what does that do to our self? It gives us a great confidence, not in who we are, but how God has made us and what he says about us. A confidence in the midst of the life that says no matter what comes, we know God's plan is good and is for us. A confidence that allows our hearts to rest, even when people criticize us, to know that the judge of the universe, the God of all things, has said, you're my beloved and is dedicated to us. You see, we need to worship God because we are always worshiping. And so much of our fears and anxieties are from worshiping the wrong things. But worship subverts our fears, 
in our anxieties and our sins by reminding us of who God is and who we are in Christ. And so Paul wants to teach the Ephesians this reality by demonstrating to them the way that he is caught up with joy and delight, not boredom, caught up in joy and delight as he reflects upon God. Do you see the joy? Do you see the delight that Paul has? That is what it looks like to have subversive worship as a part of your life. Do you have that joy? Do you have that security? Do you have that delight? It's yours in Christ. Our call is not to get it, but to receive it by saying to our soul, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Because your God is good to you and calls you to see his goodness in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ways that you are faithful to teach us the things that we need. And even in worship, it's a way that you are teaching us to know more deeply your goodness, that we might have the joy that we are built for, that our hearts long for. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.